welcome once again to True Crime on Easy Street. How are you doing, Scott? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Katie, uh, how are you? I can't complain. All right. All right. It's pouring down rain. Mm-hmm. I don't know if Yet we again. want to mention that. Yet For like again. three days in a row. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're all waterlogged. Hopefully by the time this one airs, it won't be raining anymore. By the time this one Maybe. airs, we'll probably be praying for rain. We'll be doing a rain <laughs> dance in the parking lot two weeks from now, a week of, a week from now. My name is Kelly Turner. I'm not a doctor. My name is Scott Wright. I am a mediocre journalist. And I'm Katie Givens, and I'm not a lawyer. And this team of experts has a great story that we've dissected for you today. Um, I am coming to this case clueless. She said we. Yeah, did I did say that? we. Yes. I did say we, but then I then I... I took care of it after that. Yeah, I said, did. I'm coming to this case clueless today. So <laughs> all of all five of you listeners out there, I think we have five now. Um, I am learning this right along with you. Well, and this is a case that happened in right here in Cherokee County in March of 2015. This is a very highly requested case. Listen, for the last week and a half, since we have decided that this is the one that we're going to do. In fact, it just happened to me five minutes ago at a local watering hole that I won't name since it's not our sponsor, but I was telling someone new, you're not, she said, apropos of nothing, you guys should do the McKinney case. Oh, and here and we I are said, today. In 10 minutes, I will be doing it. Uh-huh. And 10 minutes later, so last we're doing week, it. last week, we covered probably the second most requested case that we have. Last, mm-hmm. last yes. week was Glenn Holiday. Yep. And this week, is this the third most requested case? Or is it up there? It is the most requested of this week <laughs> by me. And I think by coincidence as much as anything, people just yeah. people just are, they know it. It's one that they remember because it was recent. It, yeah, it's the most recent. I think that's what year? one of the reasons What why. year did this happen? 2015. March of 2015 oh is when goodness. this took place. Very. I mean, not long ago at all. Yeah. Time flies. Wow. Gosh! All right, set the set the table or the. I the skipped year the set the table part. Usually, what? we I know but there's just so much to discuss in this case that I, and oh, it's so. So recent, we just got to get to it. We're about I got to you. jump in with both feet. Uh, well, you know what? My intro is over. Welcome everybody, <laughs> Scott. Take it away. Okay. Well, um, I think I should tell everybody that we have a reporter in the room today. Is that okay? Uh, Kathy Rowe Buttram, who is yes. my favorite person in the whole wide world when it comes to somebody who can write. Uh, she is, is not a here. mediocre journalist. She is not what I am. She is she is way past me on the journalism scale. And so she is here. We're going to do a an interview after the show today, and we're going to be featured in the local paper. And I pulled some strings to make that happen. Oh, I wonder who you. you talked to to get that to happen. I had a private conversation with myself since I'm the uh, <laughs> managing editor of the Post-Herald. I am what passes for a journalist around here. So Kathy is going to be sitting in today and telling all of you, if you want to read the paper in a couple of weeks, exactly what it is that we do here, which isn't much. So <laughs> She's I, watching the magic I happen. I hope she can stretch this into 500 <laughs> words, but I, I have faith in her and no one else. Um, so guys, the case that we're going to talk about today is something that happened in March of 2015, and it involves a, a local man. His name is Terry Lee McKinney. And uh, you know how I always, when we try to set the table, I talk about things that Katie and I have in common since we are both Cedar Bluff grads. Yep. A third Cedar Bluff graduate in the room with us. I'm surrounded by them. Yes. (laughs) And so uh, I'm in in great company. uh, Are you you getting into the fourth Cedar Bluff grad? (laughs) I'm getting into it. We're going to have another Cedar Bluff grad on the show today. His name is Terry Lee McKinney. 
And I actually was able to come up with a copy of the Costa. Mm-hmm. That is what the yearbook at Cedar Bluff High School is called, yes. if you're not familiar with that. And that's another story for another show. Uh, but we're not. <laughs> we're not. Terry Lee McKinney was a graduate of the class of 1969. And he was a class officer, voted by his peers. He was also voted most flirtatious. He was the senior class vice president. Mm-hmm. He was the president of the SGA. He was the sports editor of the yearbook, the Costa. And he was the quarterback and the captain of the 1969 Cedar Bluff Tigers football team. Wow. wow. A lot went of on, accomplishments. Went on to <clears throat> do something a little bit more nefarious than that. And we'll get to that in a moment. Okay. So what you're telling me is Terry McKinney is not the victim. That's what I'm saying. Okay. Got it. He, is the, he is the perpetrator. No, no, no. Okay. Please interject. Okay. He All is right. the perpetrator of this crime. Uh, and... On or about, and if you've read the trial transcript, you will hear on or about, Katie, right? I'm, I think that's pretty standard legal uh, that jargon. That is standard legal jargon, right? So on or about March the 24th of the year 2015, uh, a man named Leroy Pete Foster turned up missing. And that was on a Tuesday. And it turns out that the day before, he had gone to visit his friend Terry. And Terry, give you a little background about Terry McKinney. I already mentioned his uh, his high school accolades. He was an iron worker, lived here pretty much his whole life. Uh, Some people will tell you that he was a disagreeable soul, a sort. He didn't, people left the grocery line when they saw him coming kind of a guy. Mm. Oh, okay. You know, just generally disagreeable. Mm -hmm. Um, But he had this friend named, and we're going to call him Pete Foster. His name's Leroy, but we'll call him Pete. That was his nickname that his family gave him. And so for years, Pete had been the guy who, when Terry McKinney needed something done around his house, because he, didn't know, uh, he had been involved in a car accident as an adult, and he had been left paralyzed from the waist down. Okay. And so he needed help just for the basic things in life. I mean, especially if he had something going on in his house, or he needed his leaves raked, or you know, maybe a wall painted, the things that he couldn't do. Pete Foster was one of the guys, uh, an African-American gentleman who lived here in town. He was from Atlanta originally, but he lived here. And so um, is Terry McKinney African-American as well? He is is not. He is Caucasian. He is is Caucasian. Okay. Uh, But they were friends for and had been for years uh, by all accounts that I was able to find. And so this happens on March the 23rd. And like has happened many times before, Pete is going to go over and help his friend Terry around his house because he's a paraplegic. And the the day begins with Pete's mom coming over to his house and asking him to come and help her do some things around her house. But when she gets there, Terry McKinney is already there like he has done many times before. Mm-hmm. He comes over in his PT cruiser and he picks up Pete and they go back to uh, to Terry's house, which happened, and he happens to live about, two miles from where I live and Riverside campground is right in between. If you remember our Mark Burton case. So a couple of heinous crimes. So, so Terry McKinney lives not far from you. That is correct. Well, he did. He lives and near somewhere the, else and near the Riverside campground. Also correct. From the Mark Barton case. Yes. Scott. Well, we are doing crime in Northeast Alabama. You should move. <laughs> <laughs> I've told him this before, but 
So that's where this day starts. So Pete gets into the car with Terry and they go over to his place and nobody ever sees Pete again. What? Not alive. And that is on a Monday, March the 23rd. And then on Wednesday, I guess that would be the 26th or maybe Thursday, the 27th, his mom starts to get a little bit concerned. She's an elderly lady. Pete is 60 years old when this happens. So you got to figure mom is, you know, Mm -hmm. 75, well, 80, 85 uh, when this happens. And so she hears from her son every single day. Always has. He is the guy in the in the family who stuck around in Cherokee County to help and take care of her in her elder years. Mm-hmm. So when she hasn't heard from him for three days, she becomes concerned. And so she calls her other son who lives in Atlanta and he eventually comes over. Uh, but that doesn't happen until Saturday. So this is on, let's call it Thursday. I think it was Wednesday. Was it Wednesday? Mm-hmm. Okay, it was Wednesday when she decided she needed to go Straight to Terry's house, right? Okay. She's going to go to his house and knock on the door Mm -hmm. and say, hey, where's my son? I haven't seen him in a couple of days. And you were the last person to see him. Mom was there and watched Pete climb into the car with Terry McKinney. she knows you are the last person. I know for a fact that unless you can put him somewhere else, you're the last person to see him alive. All right, so so mom decides that she needs to call, and there's there's a guy named uh, his last name is Freeman, and I know I wrote down his first name, and now I can't find it anywhere, and it's not Morgan Freeman, it's Marcus Freeman. Marcus Freeman is a friend of Pete's who stays with him from time to time. When his wife get into a spat, she may go over, he may go over and stay with Pete for a couple of days or a couple of weeks even, <laughs> and so mom calls and says, hey. Marcus, I need you to go check with Terry McKinney and see where where Pete is because it's not like him to not call me for a couple of days at a time. And so Freeman and his wife, who I thought it was ironic and and sort of heartwarming that they had made up in the few days since this started, they're back together now again. And so they go over to Terry's house, knock on the door, and we'll figure out later that sometimes it takes Terry a long time to get down to the door because he lives in a two-story house with an elevator. He's confined to a wheelchair and sometimes it takes him a minute to answer the door that makes sense yeah so this is one of those cases and they knock on the door he eventually comes down and they say hey terry you're the last person to see our friend pete alive maybe they're not saying alive just yet they're not that concerned Mm -hmm. but they're concerned and he says i don't know i dropped him off somewhere and his story changes and we'll get into Mm -hmm. that a little bit but there's one very specific thing that McKinney does when Freeman and his wife are there, he has on a pair of plastic rubber surgical gloves when he answers the door and he takes off the surgical gloves, puts him into a burn barrel and Freeman hears him mutter under his breath. I don't think I'm supposed to do that. He's talking to himself. Yes. I don't, so, I don't think I'm supposed to do that. That's what Marcus Freeman said in the trial. Okay. Yeah. And so uh, the next day, Renee Moten, a neighbor and cousin of Pete's, goes to McKinney's home, knocks on the door, tries to get an answer about what's going on. Finally, on the 27th, Katie, stop me if I get a date wrong, they go ahead and file, mom files a missing persons report. Yes. Because at this point, how many days has it been? 
Four days. Four days. If I'm right about the 27th, it's been four days. Mm-hmm. You're, and, yeah, it's Friday the 27th. Okay. And this is a son that calls his mother every day. Yes. And so mom, Because he's the guy who's staying in town to take care of mom to make sure that she's, you know, she's elderly. Mm-hmm. She mm-hmm. needs so some help with basic mom things. mom says this, there's nothing right about this. Nothing, nothing. right about okay. it. So what happens then is um, Josh Summerford gets called, and I went and sat with Josh Summerford on Friday and talked to him for about 30 minutes. He is the head of the major crimes unit here in Cherokee County. He works for the Sheriff's Department. And before that, he worked for the District Attorney's Department in pretty much the same capacity for, I think, 15 years, 14 yeah. years at Chief, the time. He's chief investigator at this point. He is the guy who is going to get to the bottom of this. And sure enough, he does, but we'll get there. So Josh... Uh, is taking this, uh, he's learning about this missing persons report. When he gets a phone call from another, one Cedar Bluff police officer is telling him, we've got a missing person. He gets a phone call from another Cedar Bluff police officer who says, I just got a call over on County Road 82 and somebody thinks they found human body parts in the ditch. Parts. My dog Molly. Dog has brought up. My dog Molly who is a Labrador retriever, just brought up a human body part. And not only did she bring up one, she brought up two. The first one, the guy just passed it off and thought, well, that's weird, and threw it in the garbage. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> what? what? I'm ne- did- no, I'm never going to pass that off. As- that's weird. Well, you'd have to know what body part, part it was. And it was. It turns out it was It was sort of the uh, of the knee joint. Did he think it was so a deer he, leg? He thought it might be an animal. Yes. So like an animal bone. My dog, has, okay, my that dog makes- has pulled up a... Yeah, Animal there was park. enough Ugh. of it missing for that him to nobody say, was exactly okay, well, sure what it might be. Okay, and then thirty mm-hmm. minutes later, there's another one, and at that point, the gentleman decides, "Hey, maybe I should call." That's my phone. I thought I turned it off, but I didn't. <laughs> Your phone is ringing, and now Katie's phone is lighting up. What's happening? I, is it? A, I don't is it a, know. Is it another weather alert? Is I, it a flash flood warning? It I have surprise. no idea. No. <laughs> All right. So <laughs> what anyway. is that ringtone? That is the theme show, the theme song from the game show Match Game from 1977. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that, that checks <clears throat> out. To date myself. <laughs> <clears throat> Sorry about that. I watched TV a lot when I was a child. So anyway, uh, Summerford takes, Josh Summerford takes this second call about the human body parts. And so he's headed out to County Road 82. And if you don't know exactly where that is, and if you're listening, it doesn't matter. But just briefly for the two of you guys, it's over close to the Little River area. Okay. okay. If you're headed over towards Little River. Little River Canyon. You'll get you'll get close okay. uh, to County Road 82. And it's about 12 miles away from where McKinney lives. And we, I believe we mentioned the canyon before, Little River Canyon. Yes, we did in our very first very episode. Very first episode. When we talked about Lisa Ann Milliken's mm-hmm. we uh, did. murder. Um, and so by the time Josh gets there and the rest of the major crimes unit, and the major crimes unit is made up of officers from all of the departments, and there's a couple from Leesburg, a couple from Center, a couple from Cedar Bluff, and then the Sheriff's Department. So they all comprise, they have volunteered to be part of the major crimes unit. So they're all there doing a grid search uh, of this area because it starts to seem like somebody has driven down the highway throwing out body parts in plastic Walmart bags. Oh my gosh! Didn't mean to give Walmart a plug on this show, but in that's what Cedar you Bluff, get. Alabama. Oh my gosh! In Cedar Bluff, Alabama, right here in Cherokee County. Yeah, it's just it's just like hither hither and yon. Yeah, it's a lot like that. Oh my gosh! It's almost like so they're finding someone knew that story. They're finding body parts. I in have a list. Plastic. Oh my gosh! Okay. You want the list? Yeah, I'll shut yes. up. 
two knees, two feet, one torso, and one thigh. I wasn't ready for that, Scott. Uh, Where, where's the other thigh? I didn't mean for you to be. Oh, my gosh. It's not any good if I let you prepare for it. We two don't know. Knees. Oh, okay. We don't know. Two feet. That's like in Hither and Yon, they were missing one body part they never found. Yeah. <gasps> so body parts are missing. That's terrifying. We're starting to piece these things together. Josh Summerford and the other guys in the major crimes unit are starting to go, wait a minute, we got a missing person. He's an African-American male. We've Ooh, got, we've got are... body parts, and they're, they seem to be African-American. We think we might be able to put two and two together. Here. Oh, my gosh. So let's go over and talk to Terry Yes, we, we need to... Uh, very interested in what he has to say. Post haste, let's go see Mr. McKinney. Uh, if, yes. At 44... Uh, 450 Rocky Ford Point Road in Cedar Bluff. If you'd like to Google Earth it, when I talk later about exactly what that house looked like, you will know what I'm talking about, about a fortress. A fortress. We'll get to that. <clears throat> so, what, what was the road name? 4550. I'm sorry, 450 Rocky Ford Point Road in Cedar oh, Bluff. okay. I know exactly where that is. Right? Yeah, so you know it's close to my house. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so... Josh goes back to the... He knows he's got a problem now. Sure. Uh, and so he goes back to his office and he writes out a search warrant. Mm-hmm. And so later that afternoon, it's around 6.30 on Saturday, right, Katie? Is it Saturday or Sunday? I think it's the 29th before they... Yeah, probably. Right? So they get this all pieced together and Josh goes and gets a search warrant. He takes Sheriff Jeff Shaver with him, who's still our sheriff today, a good man, uh, and they take about 10 or 12 deputies with them. And I don't want to say that they surround the house, but Josh said in the trial transcript that the house was built in such a way that we felt like we didn't just need to go barreling in with guns drawn and kick in the front door because it's a concrete block building that's two stories tall with a porch that goes all the way around the top. Oh, it's a very strange-looking home. So, uh, so vantage point. Yeah, and yeah, exactly. And the Google Earth images are from June 2014, as of this afternoon. So, I think you would still be able to see what it looked like. Josh told me on Friday that it has since burned it down. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yes. So you can still see what it looked like at the time if you go hurry. Well, like Google's going to be. Back. Who burned it down? I did not get that far in oh. my research. Wow. But you know what? I'll have a follow-up answer for you next week. Thank you. If that is okay with you. Yes. All right. Um, so everybody's there. They put most of the guys outside of the building. They actually go in the back and encircle the home just in case, you know, he tries to make a break for it because they're pretty certain they've got the right guy now, but they still need to do their due diligence and make sure that it's going to turn out the way they think. Um, so Shaver is in the house and he says, Jeff Shaver, the sheriff says in the trial transcript that I am just standing in the room making sure that he doesn't do anything. I want to keep an eye on him. I've got guys in the rooms looking around, trying to find things, but let's just keep an eye on him. And he's, he's agitated. He's jittery. Sheriff Shaver says he's got one of those electric wheelchairs. Cause remember he's a paraplegic. Yes. So he can't, he can't do anything fast, but what he can do is he can jerk his little uh, joystick around and spin and kind of keep an eye on everybody. And he's just kind of muttering and mumbling and, Maybe he's on something. Nobody's really sure. It just doesn't. He seems erratic. Mm-hmm. I mean, I yes. guess if I'd just been busted for murder, I'd be erratic too, mm. right? But anyway, so that's what's happening. And so that uh, search starts at 6.30 p.m. And it's already starting to get dark, Sheriff Shaver says. Uh, and Josh says in his testimony that it ends up being about 1.30 in the morning before they're finished 
uh, processing what is more and more increasingly starting to look like a crime scene. Because, and I'm not going to get way down in the weeds, and you know that's a term I like to use when there's too much information, but um, Josh and the sheriff said that they, first of all, they see a brand new box. looks to be brand new, just opened. And it is a 14-inch electric chainsaw that they will determine later has been bought at Harbor Freight in Rome, Georgia, which is about 30 minutes away, if you don't mm-hmm. know where we are. Yes. Um, there are bloodstains inside the car, which Josh has looked through the window of. It's sitting right there in the parking lot. The PT Cruiser. The PT Cruiser. There's a, a large pile of cleaning supplies, uh, Clorox bleach. Mm-hmm. An alarmingly large pile. More huh? than I have used at my house, I guarantee e- you, Even in, in the, the world of COVID, yes. it would be large, huh? Yeah. Uh, the floor in the house was a concrete floor, or at least it was concrete under the linoleum that had been roughly pulled up. It wasn't like it was cut with a knife. It was like it was just ripped Ooh, to get it yeah. out of the floor. As quick as you could? Just as all of it? Or as just... you could. Just about all of it. In a pile outside, and the floors had been freshly painted, and the paint was so fresh that Josh and the sheriff both said, if you sit in one place too long, it would take some work to get your shoes out of it. Oh, that is fresh paint. Freshly painted. Yes. Um, And so at one point, Sheriff Shaver hears McKinney again. He's mumbling under his breath. He says, and I'm quoting, I guess I'm in a lot of trouble, unquote. Oh. True words were never spoken. So one of the things that happens is McKinney has, so we talked about he's interviewed or he's talked with the, uh, the family members. A couple of different family members have come over. He's told a couple of different stories about exactly when he last saw Pete Foster. And so he's, Terry McKinney is telling this to Pete's family. The first two times he told two different stories, it was to members of Pete's family. Gotcha. And now he's telling Sheriff Shaver mm-hmm. a different story. And and then on top of that saying what he just said. Yeah. As far as, I guess I'm in a lot of trouble. Yeah. Uh, so that first warrant because of the body parts that they had found on County Road 82 was for very specifically, and I I, I guess I didn't realize how specific you had to be about search warrants, but they wanted to look for saws and or cutting devices. And so that's what they were in the house looking for Mm -hmm. that very first time. Uh, The house was built like a fort, like I said, that that Josh mentioned. Uh, And Josh goes into a lot of detail in that trial transcript about what he saw inside the house. It's a two-story house. There's an elevator that takes you up to the second level because, again, wheelchair. Um, but there are bloodstains everywhere. There are guns upstairs. There's a, one of those grippers that if you were going to clean up trash on the side of the road, the little gripper where you pull the Which handle. Which he probably and, had because he's in a wheelchair and it helps him get For a lot of different the, reasons. Yeah, off shelves and all that. Yeah, mm-hmm. but maybe in this particular case because it Well, had, yeah, I won't yeah. speculate what it was used yeah. for, but. Yeah. It had bloodstains all over it. Mm-hmm. Pretty much everything in the house. I mean, if, if the guy had, had another week, maybe he had to clean the whole thing up but they figured it out before he had time to get everything cleaned up. And so it was basically all of this evidence. They took the car and put it up on a rollback and brought it over to, and this is at midnight, one in the morning. They bring it over to the rescue squad, open up one of the bays, put it in there and shut the door and lock it so that they can conduct their forensics work on the car. Mm -hmm. Plenty of things that they find in there. In fact, exhibit number 100 at the trial was Pete Foster's wallet, which in the they, car. They found it in the driver's side little cubby hole under the handle. And it had uh, it had his region's bank card. I'm sorry, his Union State bank card. Wow, I've just, now I've just 
advertise for two banks and they don't pay us any money. <laughs> well, there's one bank in Cedar Bluff, so that makes That sense. is true. There is one bank in Cedar Bluff. So uh, found his bank card and found one dollar. One dollar. One American dollar. Okay. And no driver's license because that was one of the things about Pete Foster. He had lost his driver's license some years back and didn't drive. So it just made it that much more implausible that he would hop in a car and drive away and, and be gone for three days. That was one of the reasons why the family thought, wait a minute. Well, if he's not driving over to Terry McKinney's house, he doesn't live that far from him. Well, and Terry, uh, Terry's having to go up. get him. Terry goes and gets him. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, but I'm saying yeah. that's because he doesn't have a driver's license. Exactly. So, yeah, he's not going to take off if he's not going to drive. Yeah. So, I mean, the family knows right away. It's not like he jumped in a car and drove to Atlanta to see his brother for the weekend and he forgot he, to call That's not us. him. He that's doesn't do that. He does and he here. surely would have taken his wallet. Right. Right. So starting starting to pile up. It really is starting to pile up. Oh, and did I mention on the so there's a there's a there's a balcony that goes all the way around the second floor of the house, and it's it, it literally looks like a fort. Go look at it if you haven't had a chance. It's 450 Rocky Ford Point Road in Cedar Bluff, Alabama. Uh, it goes all the way around, and what they started to find was, and I'm not going to go into a lot of detail here. There was a small burn pile outside the house on the ground, but then when they got up to the second level, charred bone fragments recovered inside the house in multiple locations. Inside the house? Inside the house. Well, I guess, and I'm not trying to put myself in the mind of a killer, but if I've got, if I'm pretty limited in my mobility and I know how to get up to the second floor where my balcony is, and there's not really any other house around where you can see what's going on at that balcony, at least it doesn't look that way from the Google Earth images. I, maybe that's the safest place to try to, oh, and here comes the other thing, to chop up body parts and burn them because they also found a hatchet, mm-hmm. a cutting board mm-hmm. that had bone fragments embedded into the cut slices on the wooden cutting board and also marks from a chainsaw in the cutting board. So, and, oh, and did I mention when they, <clears throat> when they found the chainsaw, it had human tissue on the on the teeth of the into the teeth chainsaw. of the chainsaw. Oh my itself. gosh! And you also have to remember, this man is in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. That was always the part that just blew everyone's yeah. mind. Like he is in a wheelchair. Did he? How did he overpower Pete? Did he? He did. Shoot him? He shoot him. He shot him in the back twice with a twenty-two pistol. In the back. Yeah, twice. Uh, like right below the right shoulder blade, and then right below that, the, the two bullet wounds are two and a half centimeters apart. So you got to figure it was bang bang. And Pete said, "In Mike O'Dell's, Mike O'Dell is our district attorney, who was our guest last yes. week. Uh, he he uh, was in charge of the closing argument, and he was very specific about when he talked to the jury, and he said, "Look, guys, we all know how this happened." He rolled up behind him in his wheelchair and he shot him in the back and he let him lay in the floor for 12 hours because as soon as that happened, if you, if you piece the timeline together the way that the DA's office did, the next thing that happened was McKinney realized, I'm in a world of shit. I got to clean this up. Exactly. So he gets in the car, he goes to Harbor Freight, he buys the chainsaw <clears throat> and gets the extended warranty. Why? Is he going to take it back? You want to write him a letter in Hamilton and ask him? I don't know. I don't what? know. He bought the extended warranty on the chainsaw in about like 100 feet of road. T- like he thought about this purchase a lot to get a warranty. Well, well he had 30 minutes to drive up there and think about it. Oh so maybe he's gosh. thinking, you know what? If I actually get away with this, I do need a chainsaw. Holy I don't know. cow. You'd have to ask him. Extended warranty on the chainsaw and, he, and 100 feet of rope. And the way Mike 
premised it in the closing arguments was, look, I mean, he's in a wheelchair. He must have used, he must have set up some block and tackle system or some pulley system to move the body to where he needed to, to get it where he could dismember it. Yeah. And go from there. And his go from there plan was to wrap it up into Walmart bags and hop in the car and drive over to a rural part of the county. I guess maybe thinking, hey, nobody's got a dog. There are so many things that so many variables think about. Yeah. And I'm almost finished with my part of the story. And this is the part that you guys have no idea about. Nobody knows what I'm about to tell you because I didn't know it until Friday. On the Wednesday that this happened, he got up that morning, we think, my coworker Denny and I, because Denny was at the office that day. And Mr. McKinney used to come in from time to time. He didn't come in. He would call us and we would go out to his car. Because, you know, it's a lot of trouble to get into the building with the, with the wheelchair and all that stuff. So he'd just call us and say, hey, look, I want to put a couple of rental ads in. And I need you to come out to the window. And I'll just write them out for you and give you five bucks a week for however many weeks I want to run them. That is definitely small town newspaper right there. Nobody knows this except this mediocre journalist. <laughs> rental ads. Sit like, back and watch me work. Like he owned rental Yes, properties? like he owned rental property. And so he wanted to post them as vacant and available for rental. Oh. So that morning... He calls the office, and Denny was there with me. And I remember her saying, and it was the first time she'd ever had to deal with Mr. McKinney. And I was like, oh, yeah, that guy, he shows up every once in a while. It's fine. He's not scary or anything, or he's not going to pull you into the window. Right. You literally said he's not scary or anything. I don't know if that was a direct Maybe quote, you said something like, he's harmless. Uh, maybe that. <laughs> he's cranky, wow, but he's harmless. Wrong. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so Denny goes out to the window and leans in, and she said, before I got to the window... I smelled death. It was the morning that he had driven down County Road 82 and thrown all of those body parts out the window. She said, when she came back in, I remember this. I forgot it until she said it. When she came back in, she said, that guy has been killing a deer or cutting something up. She said, he's got it all over him. It's in the car. You can smell it. He has pulled up to the newspaper to to do some rental ads yeah. and is covered in whatever. Yeah. Well, you know, anyone who's ever been around a dead body, a dead I've heard human that. body, is they say it's there's no smell like it. I've heard that. And I, don't know. I I'd hope your coworker never smells that again, but yeah. I know that the next time that she would recognize it because from from yeah. any I've never never smelled it, but yeah. from yeah. any account and, I've never heard. heard. And also the fact that he's wearing it. Yeah. Well, you've got to figure he already sprung for the extended warranty on the chainsaw. He thinks he's going to get away with it. That's why he's trying to rent the house next month. We couldn't get any clothes in those Walmart bags to change. Well, they did find some clothes in the uh, washing machine, but he didn't do a very good job of cleaning those, apparently. I don't know why he didn't just pour some of that bleach in there, but he didn't, because when they got the damp clothes out of the washing machine, when they conducted the first search warrant, uh, they still had blood stains on them. I guess... Blood stains hard to get out of clothes. Unless you've got some... I mean, you have to, like, immediately treat a blood stain, and, like, yeah, especially. Anyway, so not a lot of uh, criminal thought. And I, I, I wouldn't know how to do this either. I mean, think about how many mistakes you would make. Oh, yeah, it's really easy for us to sit here and go, he, he did way... He, but, yeah. I mean, honestly, the biggest issue is the crime. Yeah. I mean... We can talk about him not changing his clothes all day or driving up to the newspaper, but the fact that he shot a man that was supposedly his friend. Yeah, well, I think that, and I, you know, nobody's ever going to know what happened. Maybe Katie has some insight about how that conversation might have gone, but I guess 
if you think, hey, listen, my life's on the line here. I have made a horrible mistake. I have got to try and still behave normally. Maybe that explains the extended warranty. Maybe that explains the rental houses. Maybe you could say, hey, how could I have done this? Why would I be trying to rent my house next month if I had just killed somebody? I don't know how thorough he was in trying to lay out his alibi. This is very disorganized. But it's it, it's, it ended up being very disorganized. Um, and it was just, you know, it was it was very easy for, for our expert investigators here in the county to put it all together and um, and do what they had to do. And I think I'm finished with this story, and it's Katie's turn now. Katie, I can't wait to hear about this trial. Well, trial isn't doesn't give us any explosive findings because my big question in this is why? Yeah, it's what what why? happened. Well, I mean, there was a uh, you know there was speculation that uh, some Pete was a handyman. McKinney was a former iron worker, so he had a lot of tools. Before he'd been in the car accident that rendered him paralyzed, he'd been an iron worker. He was a hefty guy. Like I said, all the things, all the accolades he won in high school. So, you know, you would think that he would be one of those most likely to succeed kind of folks, just had that internal drive. Uh, But somewhere along the way, he got injured, but he had all of these tools, and Pete came over a lot and helped him out, and there was speculation that maybe uh, Pete was lifting tools, and, and finally, one day, McKinney had had enough, and there was an argument. There was some speculation that there was a $60 check in Pete's wallet, and he had told someone in his family that Monday morning that he was going to get paid $200 for his day's work over at Terry McKinney's house. Maybe there was an argument about money. I mean, it obviously had to be something that got really volatile really fast. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe somebody made a, a rash decision, obviously, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, then had to try to cover and it up. And then went to, I mean, Ridiculous some Ridiculous lengths to try and cover it up mm-hmm. that were unsuccessful ultimately. Well, we go to trial with Judge Jonathan Bell. Good I didn't realize friend. Jonathan Bell was a judge. Yes. All right. And uh, McKinney stays in jail for uh, about a year's time, a little over a year. And he, like I said, he's in a wheelchair. He's in terrible health. He has to be transported a lot back and forth from here to Gadsden to the hospital. And actually, a friend of mine, Chancellor Peak, drove ambulance, and he's he had to transport him some. Okay. And you know, he was. That's. Not pertinent to the story, but just I know. But bit tell of Chancellor I said I haven't seen him in a while. Maybe he's listening. I doubt it. Maybe he will be. Um, <laughs> trial was held though from Halloween, so October thirty first of twenty sixteen to November the second, twenty sixteen. So it just lasted three days. Okay. Day one of trial, Chief Investigator here, Josh Summerford, like we spoke about, he presents uh, the evidence that they collected at the house: a hatchet, the grabber, uh, twenty two caliber. Projectile, is that the bullet? Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, yeah, they that, found that in the torso that they mm-hmm. found on the side of the road. The bu- One of the bullets was still in what was left of the midsection, uh, and I think Jeremy Deaton described that as like the seventh vertebrae down to the, I don't remember. Anyway, it was not much, but enough that yeah. the bullet was there. The bullet was still there. Yeah. And uh, the chainsaw that was used to dismember him. And uh, they had audio recordings because uh, – d- Summerford did a couple of interviews with McKinney, and one was a two-hour interview where uh, he says, you know, he didn't have anything to do with the shooting of Pete, but that uh, there were some other people in his house when Pete was killed, and they were trying to kill him, and then in the midst of everything, Pete got shot. He said that... um, And so his solution was to 
Go ahead. Yeah, to just yeah okay. to yeah. get rid of Doesn't the body. Doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense. Then McKinney testified that uh, he suspected that Pete and some of Pete's friends were stealing tools and some other things yeah. from his house and uh, and like his property. By the end of the interview, he talks to the investigators and he says that you know he sawed his body in pieces and put him in the plastic garbage bags. He put him in his vehicle and he drove around and threw him out the window. Says all the okay. all those words. So we've got him on. What is that called? What's the crime? Uh, mutilating a corpse, maybe? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Which, like, even if you murder somebody, that gets a separate charge when you mess with their dead body. Okay. Uh, senior forensics investigator Mark Hopwood with the Jacksonville State University Center for Applied Forensics, he testifies um, to all the evidence that was found that they had to send over for forensics investigation, all the body parts, all the tissue, all the And there was a bunch blood, of it. I mean, there was a lot of it. Of it. I mean, it was everywhere. Everything collected from his house, from his car, and alongside County Road 82. Uh, day two of the trial, family members and friends of Pete's took the stand, recounting the events that led to them filing that missing persons report, how they went over to McKinney's house. Sometimes people would go over and knock on the door, and he'd come, and he'd be like, who is it? And they'd be like, where's Pete? And he would disappear, wouldn't talk to him. Okay. And then, you know, a couple of different people he gave a couple of different stories to. He said at one point he talked about some girls showed up when they were in the car and some girls were talking to him and just just nonsense, really. Sheriff Jeff Shaver and, again, Josh Summerford, they took the stand. They talked about the execution of the search warrant at the residence. They uh, go into detail of all the things that were found, again, and, like, all the blood, the tissue, uh, the cleaning supplies, everything that they found there. Day three of the trial, coroner, or, he was the coroner at the time, Dr. Jeremy Deaton. He talked about the recovery of the body parts along the side of the road. He, he gave an explanation on how they have to turn all that over to forensics. And then we have Dr. Kathleen Instice. Instice? I didn't get that far. She's state state medical examiner. I didn't get that far. Uh, and she performed a forensic examination on the body parts that were sent to her. And she's the one who confirmed that those remains were, in fact... Okay. Foster. So, so we've we've uh, not to interrupt Katie, but you know we've had so many cases where we've been frustrated that it was before DNA evidence was available. Mm-hmm. This is one case, thank goodness, finally where DNA evidence because I think they went and got a toothbrush from his house or something, right? And just to to make sure that they uh, were able to try and figure out if it was him or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah, so no, they one hundred percent know in this case that the body parts found were Pete Foster's, and. Uh, On this day, two jurors are presented with a video recording of an interview between McKinney and Summerford where this interview took place about two weeks after the first interview that was put into evidence. And in this interview, he basically denies everything that he admitted in the first interview. So in this interview, he says he didn't do anything. He doesn't know what happened to him. He doesn't. That's the second interview? That's the second interview. And I wondered about this, and I want to know what you think, because the second interview took place, like you said, two weeks later. He's in the hospital. Yes. And so supposedly he was on speed. I mean, he was he was a drug addict to some extent, allegedly, uh, but that he, was, he took things every day to, you know, hell, he's probably, I don't guess he's in pain if he's paralyzed, but just, you know, he's live, he lives alone. Maybe two weeks in the hospital got him off of all the narcotics that he was allegedly on, and he was able to speak lucidly for the first time in years. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What do you think? I, I don't... It, this, that's as good of an explanation as any. Right? I mean, what else? Yeah. And so, after these uh, three days of trial, the jurors deliberated for less than an hour, and they returned a guilty verdict. 
of course. O- mm-hmm. Overwhelming evidence. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I would I, definitely agree with them. I don't think that, you know, much thought had to go into that. But then the jury was polled, like, when you when you give a verdict, uh, the McKinney's attorneys requested that the jury be polled on their votes, and it was unanimous verdict. Okay. Every single juror. I mean, every, I, every juror said... Guilty. Guilty. I guess if you're a defense attorney who's just lost a case, your last grasp is to try to find somebody who in 30 seconds and that may has help, changed his or her mind. And maybe helps in the in the appeal process. Okay, sure. Maybe. I don't. Yeah. Not a lawyer over here. Probably. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but Judge Jonathan Bell, um, a few weeks later, they have the sentencing hearing, which is on November 23rd, and he sentences him to life in prison, which is the maximum sentence that they can offer in this case. It's not a capital murder case, so it's okay. life in prison. Okay. Anyway, he is uh, sentenced to life in prison, and there are different quotes from the DA's office, and they are very pleased with the sentence, and they think that justice was served in this case. Okay. Okay. So he's never getting out. Right. He did file an appeal, of course, because who doesn't? And But in on November, no, sorry, on September 1st, 2017, Attorney General Steve Marshall announced that the Alabama Court of Criminal Appeals upheld uh, his murder conviction and he is going to hang out in prison. But like you mentioned, Scott, in 2016, his house was burned to the ground. Okay. Well, it burned to the ground. It was burned up and I don't know if it's been demolished since because there's kind of like a shell of it still there. Okay. But to my knowledge and to my research, I did not, I don't know if they've ever found who burned it because he was in prison at the time so he didn't burn it so I don't know if it was, Yeah. I I, I don't know how I'm going to drive by on the way home tonight. I was about to say, yeah, dark you, yet. I'm just going to literally gonna, right by your yeah, house. Yeah, it's just it's one road over say, from my house. I'm just going to go check it out. And if it, if there's anything worth taking a photograph of, I will take that image and I will send it to Katie because, and we'll get it up well, on our I Instagram have page. A, I found like there's a there was a WEIS radio um, article on it in 2016. So it was like January 2016 when it burned. And okay. you can see pictures of the burned home. And there's like a little, looks like a Volkswagen bug in the in the yard. And I don't know if it was burned too or if it's just the back half just sitting in the yard. There's also like a little scenery there's, there's in the front. a larger than normal level of dysfunction in the yard. When I, I did drive over there... Uh, what, maybe two months ago when we first started talking about possibly doing this case, I did drive over there on a sunny Saturday afternoon and just kind of take a look. And it, it I don't even remember it being burned, but it's just a concrete block building. It, mm-hmm. it would be kind of hard just at a glance if I just, and it's the end of a cul-de-sac. So if I just spun around and glanced, I don't even know if that I would notice that the roof was gone because it was a flat-roofed home. So mm-hmm. Yeah, it in um, this, it's like the total top of it is gone, but it's the picture I'm looking at, the shell okay. of it's still there. This is an article by Joey Weaver, uh, and he and there was a bunch of articles for WIS on this trial, it's where I got a lot of my okay. research from. They covered the trial extensively. Well, if only you had gone to the Post Herald website, you could have also covered, uh, seen it covered extensively. <laughs> uh, thanks for not looking, mediocre um, journalist that I am. I didn't even think to mention it. Why? Um, why doesn't it? Co- why you need to work on your uh, SEOs? Oh, then. I need to work on a lot of stuff. I'm sure. <laughs> when I googled it, your articles don't pop up. Yeah, I think that's something that I've been told before that I need to do a better job of, possibly by Kathy over here. <laughs> anyway, I'll do better next time. But yeah, that um, if you want to look him up, and we'll post some stuff on our social media, but Terry McKinney is not the best looking criminal. You know what? He was voted most flirtatious by his senior class in 1969. I have the yearbook in my hand to prove it. I know. And those pictures in his yearbook are a lot better than the pictures you get on Google because 
Uh, he is not photogenic anymore. I am a lot Yikes. older now than I was when I was a senior in high school, and I'm not much to look at either, so I understand <laughs> how Father Time uh, does have that effect on you. Sorry. That's it. <laughs> is that all we have? Are we done? We are. How long that is it? Was, that was wild. I mean... And we got out here in like 45 minutes, too. That, this is great. We're at 46. Scott, Katie, you guys did an incredible job on that. Yeah. Uh, hey, uh, I learned a lot today. Well, you know what? Next week, it's your turn. So I'm, you know what? I'm not coming to visit that, you. Mitch. No, I'm just I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have to cut that and do it over, aren't we? <laughs> hey, you know what? Okay, challenge accepted. Oh, well, I can see that's what I expected you to say. Exactly. I'm so glad you You're did. Not, yes, exactly. Now, no, cut it. We're getting into no. October, and we're going to get a little, to a little spooky season. Yes, it's coming. Coming I soon. It. I'm lead, I will follow your lead on that, guys. Whatever you decide <laughs> to do, I'm okay with. So we have some shout-outs. Scott, I'll let you go first. Uh, Kaylee Hand is a lady that I met last weekend at our very own Easy Street Restaurant, Bar, and Performance Hall, and she is a big fan of the show. In fact, she walked in on Wednesday and just sat down when she realized it was a true crime podcast and stayed the whole darn time. That's wonderful. I know. Hello. That's all, right. all I have. Okay, well, I we have one on uh, the Apple Podcast app, really? and um, it's like every single letter of the alphabet in all mixed up jumble letters, oh, okay. and so then they just made some random, account. and then twelve is at it, the end. So like all the letters jumbled up, and then twelve. What is it code? Do we have to figure it out? I don't know. It, and so, it, but it's a very nice review. It's a five star, and it says, "Stop what you're doing and listen to every episode." The best true crime podcast. I have no idea who that is. Well, but thank you so much, thanks, Alphabet Mr. 12. But I swear to Mr. God, Lister. we're going to make t-shirts at some point and they get one. <laughs> all right. So thank you all for listening. Have a great week. Good night, everybody. <laughs>